Hello, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. We believe all women lawyers deserve to be wealthy women lawyers. Our mission is to provide thought-provoking, powerful, and practical information to help you in creating your own sustainable, wealth-generating law firm without overwork or overwhelm so you can live your best life. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm so excited for you to meet our guest today. So let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. I'm your host, Davina Frederick the creator of Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast and also the founder of Wealthy Woman Lawyer, which is a coaching business that helps women law firm owners scale their law firm businesses to and through a million dollars with total ease. And today I am super excited for today's guest because this topic we're going to be talking about is hot, hot, hot. It is something that so many all the na- so many people in the nation and so many women law firm owners are dealing with, and it can be a real impediment to wealth unless we deal with it. So we're going to put it on the table and talk about it today. And that is student loan debt. And I'm excited about my guest because she is truly an expert in this area. She has more than 30 years experience as a lawyer. She graduated from Stetson Law in 1992. And she actually worked for Sally May and ECMC, or yeah, ECMC, and other student loan servicers before opening her own law firm, which she did in, I think, 1995. Is that correct, Christy? And, uh, yeah. yeah. And so she helps uh, her clients with cons- deal with consumer debt. So bankruptcy, uh, student loan debt, all of the things that factor into um, getting out of debt, managing debt, and really getting your financial life back on track. So Christy Arkovich, everyone of Arkovich Law, she is in South Tampa. And so I'm really glad she's here today because we're bracing for a hurricane here in Florida. <laughs> Welcome, Christy. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, Davina. Yeah. So tell me, you are all, are you all, uh, you said that you are actually out of the state today, but I assume your team is all batting down the hatches over there in Tampa and yeah, we secured, yeah, we closed um, tomorrow and the next day, and we've secured our computers and sandbags for our doors and things like that. But uh, I like to joke, I evacuated months ahead of time to Iowa, where I am now. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. And yeah, and you're in a lovely place. I'm sitting here looking, envying that fireplace that you have behind me. I bet yeah. it's really beautiful <laughs> it's up there. It's not cold enough to have it on, but you know, it is getting to the 40s in the evening now at night, which is fantastic. I mean, in Florida, it's always hot. So that's one of the like yes, away. indeed. Yes, indeed. It's a little, you know, we'll have it a little cool here right now, but as soon as that hurricane blows through, it's going to take all the air with it yep. and probably not great hair days next week. With you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, But anyway, let's get on with today's uh, topic and start out by kind of, I gave a very brief introduction of you, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about you, your law firm and how you help your clients? Sure. Um, Well, when I graduated in 92, it was sort of during a little bit of a recession. And so I had worked for three other or for two other law firms or three other law firms for about a a couple years before I started my own firm. And one of our clients um, was a big student loan guarantor. Sally May USA Funds was was a company back then. And so I did that work. And that was one client who I took with me when I left because the firm I was with didn't want to have anything to do with student loans. And so what we did for it kind of gradually um, increased to represent ECMC, which is the guarantor of a lot of the older loans. And they're the one that really litigates most of it. So we ran around the state of Florida and I tried um, discharge cases for student loans in bankruptcy. 
in Miami and Jacksonville and Orlando and Tampa and really got my feet wet then. Um, and then after that, I went to a um, boot camp, I guess, or workshop, you should call it, uh, by Josh Cohen up in Connecticut to kind of learn some of the federal programs because, you know, practicing in bankruptcy, you really didn't know anything about the federal program. So that kind of, you know, clued me in on other options out there. And then it just continued to grow from there. And so um, when I opened my own practice, I focused on employment law, which was always a, a, a true love of mine and in bankruptcy as well. Um, and for your listeners, the reason I did that combination was because employment law was more attorney intensive and it was more contingency fee. I got paid larger sums at the end of the case where bankruptcy was more covered the day to day, you know, it was up front. It covered a lot of, um, took a lot of staff time instead of my time. And so it was a good fit for my firm. I think every firm, it's good to have more than one practice area, um, cause something can happen and it can just wipe out your practice instantaneously. Mm -hmm. And so that was a good fit for a number of years. And then I just kind of moved along and back to student loans um, when the market was ready for that. You know, it wasn't really ready back then, but clearly in the last 10 years, we've needed some big help with student loans. Right. Absolutely. Was there a change um, in the law at some point or has it always sort of been this way, but it just hasn't been a problem because the amount that people were borrowing was different or there were more standards in place? but or, or, or was there a shift someplace? So, so like, I remember borrowing as, as an undergrad um, way back in the day. And fortunately, I didn't borrow very much. Um, and, you know, I don't remember as many people struggling with student loan debt in the way that we are today. So can you give us a kind of a little history? So you certainly have for 30 years have probably seen a little bit of ebb and flow in this area. Well, back when I graduated um, law school in 1991, um, that was exactly the case. I, I, I'm an attorney only because of my student loans. So I believe in the program. I, I think it's very important to have the availability of student loans. But when I graduated, it was a ratio of one to one. In other words, I owed about what my first year salary was. And it wasn't hard for me to pay that loan. And I, I paid the loans back in the 10 years or whatnot. Um, and that's the way it was. You know, everybody had a 10 year time period. But now the ratios aren't one to one any longer. You usually have someone who isn't able to obtain employment right away, or the ratios are up to two to one to eight to one, where they just really can't repay that. And um, I even had a high rate of interest. You know, when we graduated in the 80s and 90s from college and law school, the rates of interest were eight to eight percent, 12 percent. I mean, that's high, very high. Right. But because the amount we borrowed was so low, it wasn't a problem. Where now, you know, with parent plus loans and grad loans, the interest rates are 6.8 to 8.5. You've got private loans that are all over the place. You know, they go up from like 3% to 15% and such. Um, and that ratio is no longer one to one. So it's not really a shift in the, the legal environment that has gotten to that. It's the tuition costs and the fact that people just can't repay those loans. And so most of our clients nowadays, you know, they want to repay what they borrowed. They understand they signed a contract. They're good with that. What they can't pay is the excessiveness, you know, what it's become, basically. Because with the cost of interest, with the default, which basically adds 25% collection costs on a federal loan, you end up with just something that's unpayable. And we get rid of that excessiveness. And then we try to do it in a way that's tax-free, or at least, you know, with the understanding of what the potential tax issue could be. Wow, wow. Yeah, I've heard so many stories of, from women law firm owners who are 
by the time they they're out on their own and opening their own practice, they have six figures in mm-hmm. debt and, and multiple six figures. So quarter million dollars is kind of a common amount that I hear. I've heard up $350,000. The most I ever heard was $650,000 in student loan because she had gotten multiple degrees and changed careers and things like that. And a lot of women law firm owners, when they go out and start their own business, they're doing it as solos and they're lucky, you know, they're making $50,000 the first year in just mm-hmm. revenue. Like So it's not even, uh, it, it doesn't, the math doesn't even make sense. And that's if they choose to start their own business or if they feel like they're forced into starting their own business because they can't get a job, which certainly was the case after the 2008 recession. A lot of people did that. Um, and uh, also, even if they do get a job, there are, it depends on the market they're in because there are a lot of markets that aren't paying those six figure right. salaries for associates. It's the top 1% of the top 1% of law schools. You're going to get these. I have a, a friend whose son recently graduated from a top law school, top of his class, and he's going to have, you know, $350,000 salary out of law school for a firm out of New York. But that's a rarity. The majority of lawyers <laughs> are out there making more regular salaries, unlike what people think they're making. So there's a real disconnect, I think, in understanding of, of what what is going on with the student loan. And I think in general, the public has a real misunderstanding because a lot of people who are my age are saying, hey, if they didn't borrow money to go to school, there's their, or they did and they long ago paid it back, they're sitting there looking at it going, I don't understand. I paid back my loans. How come you aren't able to pay back your, your loans? Right. And we deal with that. With private loans, um, the borrower has to have a co-borrower. And so usually that's a parent or a grandparent. And like you said, most of those grandparents and even parents have paid their own loan back, so they don't get it. But the problem is, is back then you could pay for a course with a summer waitress job. You can't do that anymore. Um, You know, that part-time work, while it might open your eyes as to what you want to do, maybe open your contacts for networking and, and externships and things like that, it doesn't pay much. And so with the cost of tuition, it's not really doing that. And, uh, that's one of the things that we do is we try to you know, get that grandparent or parent in on the communications and have them understand there's no way for our borrower to deal with this loan in a traditional sense. Um, it's just not a, not a possibility, really. And so uh, when you mentioned the amounts of debt that people have, we do have a lot of attorneys as clients, and they are usually in the lower six figures. Um, I think our highest has been 1100000 Wow. Yeah. Wow. And and, and his story was he was a neurosurgeon and he was at the very end of his career. And what he had done is he'd taken out his own loans. He paid them back and he'd taken out parent plus loans for his three children. Now they had their own loans. So they had a lot of loans that they used to go through medical school, medical school, but he had parent plus loans too. And so with all the years of forbearance, the balance kept getting bigger and bigger. And so when he did make payments, it never really made much of a dent. So he, when we did the math, he probably paid the vast majority of the principal back but he still owed a million dollars. And so he came to me and he was in his early seventies. He was still working as a neurosurgeon and he was Um, afraid that he couldn't settle it because he'd have this giant taxable event. And he was worried he couldn't keep working because he was afraid he might commit malpractice one day. And so we used what we call this total and permanent disability program. And we were able to get rid of the loans in about, I think it was around eight months or so. And, um, you know, that let him, 
basically end his career and enjoy retirement where he was stuck. He was really stuck where he was um, when he first reached out to us. So a million one is my record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad that you shared that story in particular, because I think a lot of people tend to think of student loans as being, okay, these are, this is Gen Z and right, young and millennials, oh. right? They're thinking that are having this problem. I don't understand why they don't work. And if, you know, and of course, those of us who are actually boots on the ground talking to people all the time about this, we understand that, you know, we're talking people in their 30s and 40s and uh, and, and on up. The article I just posted that uh, was discussed recently on Facebook were, were people in their 60s and 70s and their parents, grandparents who co-signed on loans, who were helping out their, their kids um, and really not able to retire. But I'm, I'm really concerned about this group kind of in their 30s and 40s. Because in addition to uh, their own loans, they're getting married and they're marrying somebody else's debt. So that's another way that debt can really spiral out of control. You've got your debt, they've got their debt, you're paying these really you know, high interest rates, the, it was a ridiculous amount to begin with. And, <laughs> and then you're putting it all together and going, oh gosh, how do we, how do we deal with this? It, it delays buying a house, it delays starting a family. It delays all those things that impact the economy. Are you seeing a lot of couples kind of come in and say, hey, you know, what can we do about this? Oh, well, we've seen folks that say I'm, I'm scared to get married and, and they just put the decision off. Um, so we generally won't have a couple that comes in to talk about each of their loans. We'll have someone that just avoids marriage because of that. And that's wow. what. Yeah. Wow. And and that what an what an, what an, uh, a big impact that has on somebody's life to make the decision to not get married or not get that much involved with them because you're it, worried about the amount of money or you don't want to marry into somebody who's also got the same amount of money married to somebody or you're maybe ashamed or embarrassed about it. Do you deal with a lot of sort of shame and embarrassment for people, especially highly educated people, right? Um, well, yes. I mean, many of our clients are attorneys. We did a seminar recently for the Florida Bar on student loans, a couple of them actually, and it had the highest attendance because, you know, attorneys have a lot of debt and um, uh, they're ashamed of it. Yes, but they really are talking with me trying to find a solution. Um, they don't look to me as more of a counselor. They're looking to me more of a, a problem solver. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so our conversation just goes in that direction. Um, many times they don't want their parents' credit affected, uh, if they've co-signed something. So we're trying to, you know, make sure that that doesn't happen. We're focusing on certain loans in a certain order to avoid that, um, because they don't want their problem to become their family's problem. You know, we, we do see that. Right. Right. Yeah. For sure. But for, but for people that, um, you know, want to build their wealth, they really need to have an ownership interest in their firm and maybe get out and start their own firm. And student loan debt is causing them to not do that or feel that they can't do that. And that's where the problem, I think, really stems. So um, I'm very happy about some of the new progress the Department of Ed has made this year. Um, we had identified just so many problems over the last few years. And I think that what they're doing is plugging a lot of those holes. And we'll get to some of that later here. Yeah. Uh, but there's yeah. a lot of hope for people in the future, I think. Before we get into kind of some of these solutions, I, I do want to talk, I, I, and I think a lot of people, if they have student loan debt, they're sort of aware of this, but uh, bankruptcy, fresh start bankruptcy is a, you know, has always been something that's been a solution in the United States for um, 
so that we don't go to debtor's prison. People can get that fresh start and start over. But student loans have been an exception to that. Can you tell us why that is? Sure. Um, in student loans, we have um, a test called the Bruner Standard. Um, and it, it originated back in, I think it was 1987. And it was basically someone who would try to discharge their loans only a few months out of school. And because of the facts of that case, the courts came down very harshly and created this three-pronged test that folks can't meet. And you have to minimize your expenses, which is not hard. Maximize your income, again, not hard. Um, provide proof of good faith repayment when you can. But then that prong of for the re, for whatever your circumstances are, they have to last for the majority of the repayment period. That prong is impossible to prove. You can't prove nowadays that in 20 years you can't pay back something towards this loan. You can write a book. You can have a you can have any kind of you know gig on side gig, regular job, whatever it is. And so we can't meet that burden. We can't prove that. And so bankruptcy, um, it's known that it fixes a car problem, you know, fixes a house problem, fixes a credit card problem, but it really creates more of a student loan problem because over the past decade or two decades, what's happened is folks with student loans, the Department of Ed puts those loans in forbearance. People don't file an adversary to try to get rid of the loans because it's very hard to meet that Bruner standard that I talked about. And so the loans just continue to ride through the bankruptcy, unaffected accruing interest. So if you might have 50,000 when you start, you have 100,000 when you get out. Then you have a few years of no contact, add another 50,000. And, and so um, we brought that to the attention of our judges in the middle district here in Tampa. And we also um, combined that with an inspector general's report that showed that servicers gave improper advice 62% of the time, whatever it is that they were doing, whether they're calculating the interest, putting someone in a program, they did it wrong 62% of the time. And, and as an wow. attorney, you know, if I were wrong 62% of the time, um, I'd be disbarred. I mean, yeah, you lose your license for sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother episode of, you know, <laughs> let's talk about banks and lenders yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what um, that is, because that whole industry needs to be reformed. Let's exactly. And, and so we were instrumental in helping the middle district uh, judges recognize that they can't just rely on the servicers. And there's this problem out there of this continuing debt that's getting bigger and bigger. And bankruptcy attorneys weren't talking about it because they didn't understand student loans, you know, a few years back. And so our district started a new program called Student Loan Management Program. And it's been copied around the nation a little bit and it's growing, um, and, you know, momentum. And so what it does is it allows someone to get the benefits that a borrower would normally have in bankruptcy that they didn't get over the past few years. And so that's been helpful. Um, but then Congress uh, does have a bill um, that's before them called the Fresh Start Act, coincidentally, where if it passes or, or some, you know, some combination of factors uh, does pass, it would have a 10 year period where people who had been trying to repay for 10 years and could show that would have an automatic discharge because then they didn't have to bring an adversary and things. So that may pass. I mean, there's been attempts over the past years to try to get that passed. Um, right now, with all the forgiveness that's occurring, um, Congress has kind of taken a step back. They're starting to vote against things. So I give that less of a chance of success now than I might have a few months ago. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, but wow. you just never know. I mean, you, you never know with Congress. <laughs> right, right. And there's also a big distinction between federal loans and private loans. And I think a lot of times it can be confusing 
for people to know what type of loan they have because as you're going through as you're going through school and you may have oh you know this opportunity to consolidate these loans and you think it's still a federal loan and then you find out later that it's a private loan i do think there's a lot of um uh it's 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 a complex thing to understand what's really happening if you're not a you know an economist you're not a banker you're not a lender and and even if you are apparently you're having trouble understanding it, at least 62% of them are because i see that i've seen that a lot too where people think i have i have a federal loan i'm going to benefit from this you know recent act and then they look at their loans and they go wait a minute now my servicer is telling me, no, I have this class of loan, not that class of loan, which means at some point it was consolidated. And when that happened, it they took it out of federal status. So I now no longer benefit from it. Those kind of, how much do you see those kind of complications? And are there more things you could do in terms of bankruptcy if you have private loans versus federal loans? Or how do we, how does all that sort of play out depending on what type of loan you have? Okay. Um, I see that problem every day, pretty much, with the different types of loans. And part of the problem is even the federal system is a little bit confusing. For one, it's not transparent. So it's very hard for someone to figure out what they have. Lately, there's been more information put up on studentaid.gov, which is a government site, and folks can see. But part of the problem is servicers are talking about these older federal loans as being um, a private loan. And they're really not. They're privately held, and they may have been privately originated but they're actually a federal loan, but they're only guaranteed by the government. They're not actually owned or created by the government. So therefore they're not covered by the CARES Act. You know, the CARES Act is what was passed at the beginning of COVID that allowed for zero interest, zero payments and so forth. So we have a lot of folks who during COVID, they haven't really known what they've had and they haven't been able to um, consolidate to change their loan type, which is one of the things that you can do. And a lot of folks don't know to do that. So we do see that problem all the time. Um, with bankruptcy, the second part of your question about um, can you get rid of private loans in bankruptcy, that is one of our great successes. Um, in the past few years, there have been some cases around the nation, and, and um, some of ours have been up in the forefront about discharging private loans that are actually not uh, student loans or not qualified education loans. Maybe someone went to a Caribbean medical school. You know, there's a ton of Caribbean medical schools. I once looked it up, and there's like 50 uh. schools down there. Wow. And three of them are eligible for federal aid. Most of the rest are funded by family money. You know, someone pays cash or a private loan. Well, we can discharge the vast majority of those. And many of those folks can't pass their boards. You know, they incur all this debt. They try to come back to the U.S. and they can't be licensed. Um, and so I think that's a huge benefit for folks to be able to level the playing field, to get rid of those loans, potentially because they're not qualified. Um, there's other reasons to have a non-qualified education loans. I won't get into it today, but there's there's about seven, eight different reasons. And so um, just yesterday, for instance, we have one that was filed um, out of state with co-counsel and um, we have three defendants, uh, one of which just agreed to a, a stipulation of discharge of their private student loan debt. And then we're going to wait and see what the results are for the other two. Um so we can you know, basically argue things for private loans to get them discharged in bankruptcy that we can't with federal loans. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I do think there's a lot of uh, misinformation that's being, if you go to your servicer and you try to get information, it's not really always reliable information. 
um, yeah. that you may be getting, right? Yeah, if you, and one of the ways we actually ask our clients to back check that, you call their servicer four or five times, they're likely to get three or four answers. One of them might be right, but which one? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that's where you got to do some digging. So let's talk about some of the kind of solutions for people that you're able to, that you guys are able to bring about and help with. Um, and we can start with kind of things that are traditionally have been on the table, or we can talk about sort of the stuff that's been happening in the last year. Well, um, probably let's focus on some of the things that have been happening in the last year, um, because that's where people have the biggest questions is all these changes they're hearing about in the news. How does it benefit me? And so right. I think that's where their focus is. Um, so first of all, that 10,000 forgiveness, that's what we hear a lot about. That's not very much money. Um, it could help some of the lower income folks because it would remove the default that might be on their loans currently. Uh, but we're more focused on the Department of Ed's attempts to plug the holes, you know, fix the problems that they've got in the other programs. And there'll be a lot more forgiveness with those fixes than there will with the 10,000 thing. Wow, um, really? So give me some yeah. idea what that what what that would look like. Okay. What kinds of things are you guys fighting for? Sure. Uh, well, the first thing is if you have any folks that are in public service or have any relatives who are in public service, that's the biggest fix. It's basically the public service waiver, which is going to count old uh, payments on old loans, whether they're the wrong type of loans, wrong type of payment, um, any kind of problem that they've had usually can be fixed with this waiver program. But it's important that they do two things before October 31. One is make sure that they consolidate any of their older um, federal loans, which are called FEL loans, F-F-E-L. It, it stands for Federal Family Education Loan, but they're called FEL or FEL. If they consolidate those to direct loans, they'll be eligible for that program. If they don't do that before August, October 31, then it's going to go right back to the old way, where people who've been working public service, you know, expecting the forgiveness in 10 years are only told that, oh, you've got the wrong loan type. You were never eligible, eligible to begin with. That was a huge problem. And it's going to go back to being the same problem after this one year is over. And the one year is almost over now. It ends October 31. So they need wow. to consolidate direct. They also need to uh, file a public service um, certification. Basically, you take a form to your employer. They fill it out saying you're full time. You work for a qualifying entity. And then you send it into Mohila, who's the new public service servicer. Um, that's fixing a huge problem. And, you know, importantly, uh, there was an attorney I spoke with. A few weeks ago is a good example of this. This was someone who uh, makes pretty good money right now, but they had been working public service for the vast majority of their career. And so their student loan was huge because they thought that it was going to be forgiven at the end of their public service. And it wasn't. Um, but they now had their head in the sand because they were so sick of the whole student loan program, the whole problem. Their loans were 300 some thousand. They were a little older and um, it might have even been more than that. I can't remember the exact number. But we went through their circumstances and found out that they're going to be eligible for this waiver. They just need to make sure that they apply for it and change their loan type to qualify. He hadn't even, um, the only reason he reached out to me was because a friend of his demanded that they call me. Um, wow. and, you know, because we'd helped the friend and, and he did. And so we were able to, you know, suggest to him during a consultation what to do. And, um, you know, that's one of the advantages of having a consultation is that you can either, you know, learn how to fix it yourself and um, know exactly, you know, you're hearing from an advocate on your side as to what you should do, or you can hire that person and then they can go and fix it for you. Um, but uh, uh, that public service waiver program, he didn't have to go back to work for the public service. A lot of folks still today 
think that, well, that waiver program isn't for me because I'm no longer working public service. Maybe I did in the 90s or 2000s, but not anymore. You don't have to go back. One of the provisions of the waiver is you, you don't have to be working there. Um, but the regular program requires you to still be working for the nonprofit. So these fixes in the last year have limited durations and public service is one of them. The second one is um, folks during the past decade or so, they've been told if they call their servicer and say, oh, you know, I've got a problem making my payment. I, you know, I've had this and that problem this month. Um, instead of putting them on an income driven plan, which is kind of what we do for someone who doesn't make enough money to repay their student loans and maintain a standard of living, um, they just put them on forbearance instead. And forbearance is basically an easy fix. It's a way that someone cannot make a payment. It's also a way to get them off the phone faster. And so okay. some servicers have been accused of you know, paying incentives to their customer service reps for short call durations. Well, how do you get someone off the phone? You don't tell them about all these different things they can do. You just give them forbearance. And so it's been a long problem, longstanding problem. You have a loan that's been 50,000, that's now 150,000. And so the IDR waiver and audit program that was announced in April requires someone to consolidate their loans to direct loans by the end of this year. So this deadline is December 31. So it's instead of October 31, it's December 31. And it allows for someone to get credit for those long forbearances that they might've had. And that credit then can be applied towards forgiveness. Um, the other thing that's coming out is a new income driven plan. So we have some folks who they make pretty good income, right? They're, they're owners of their firm or, or they, they work somewhere where they're you know at the top higher level and they're making six figures, but they might help care for their parents or they might have some you know expenses that are high. One of the problems with the current income-driven plans is that it's a percentage of that income and it doesn't take into account specialized expenses, no matter how legitimate they might be. And so the payment is too high, so they end up defaulting. Well, there's a new income-driven plan coming out in July that's going to be 5% of someone's income, discretionary earnings, and then they're using a more, um, more broad uh, test for expenses. So I think that's going to fix one of those last holes that we have, which is folks that have you know high expenses, can't make an income-driven plan. They're going to be able to do that now. Um, there's some other fixes with respect to um, uh, just overall things like the accrual of interest, the capitalization of interest. There's some internal fixes that are going to make it so the balances don't get so high. Because remember where I mentioned that folks come to us, they generally understand that they've signed a contract and they owe the money. They just can't handle all the excessive craziness that's gone on. And that's where... Yeah. I mean, it is, it is insane when you hear people say, I have already paid off the amount that I borrowed and I still practically. owe $300,000. And yeah, I mean, that to me is just sickening. It's sickening. Yeah. I wanted to go back. You mentioned something about forbearance. And I just want to... I think a lot of times people bury their head in the sand about this and they don't really think about... So you talk to a servicer and they go, I, I'm at a point where I can't pay my loan, you know, whatever circumstances have happened, I can't pay anymore. And they say, okay, well, let's just put you in forbearance or let's do a deferment or let's do, and let's talk a little bit about the, cons the, the financial consequence of that. Because sure. I've seen that happen over and over again. And people are later on, years later, they're like, oh, oh my God, what did I do? When they go to try to buy a house, when they go to try to do something they yes. start to see the consequences of that. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of what the consequences are of doing those things? Sure. 
Um, so the servicers really haven't been giving caps on someone's ability to use forbearance. And um, it's just gone on for years. And so what happens when someone goes on forbearance, they don't have a payment, but the interest still accrues. And at the end of forbearance period, which is usually a year, that interest then it tacks on to the original principal balance and it has a compounding effect. So now they're paying interest on interest. It's not simple interest. It's that compounding right. effect. And so just like Warren Buffett, where if you spend, if you um, save, I think $50 a week at age, whatever, by the time you're 65, you have a million dollars kind of thing. It works in the exact opposite for someone with a student loan. And then with all the scams going on, you have folks that accidentally default. They don't realize that, oh, this new company has my loans. They're the servicer. They ignore them. Then they accidentally default and they add 25% to the balance. So you have that accrual of interest. You have an accidental default. Um, and you have that going on for years, pretty soon you have an enormous amount of money to repay. Um, the other thing about buying a home is that mortgage underwriters have traditionally, if someone's on forbearance, they count their student loan payment, if they were making it, as 1% of the overall balance. So that means someone who has a $300,000 loan, if they went to apply for a mortgage, the underwriter is going to assume they have a $3,000 student loan payment. Well, that means they're not going to be able to afford that house probably. Um, and so that's the harm that forbearance has. And if someone defaults, then they go on CAVERS, which is the mortgage underwriting default system that they can track that. So forbearance, um, while it sounds like an an immediate fix, you know, there's no paperwork required. You can get no payment very quickly. It's a trap. It really is. Um, it should be used only for someone for a short-term problem, like a car accident where they're unable to work for a period of time. It should never be a long-term solution. It's not a solution of any kind. Um, but this audit program is designed to give a one-year credit towards folks who um, have a direct loan. And remember, mm-hmm. you can consolidate an older loan to be a direct loan and to kind of get credit for those long-term forbearances. There's certain things that they look for. It has to be cumulative more than three years or consecutive more than a year. Um, but you know, you can use that in combination with public service. So we have folks that are contacting us that can get an immediate forgiveness without doing anything further other than the paperwork to get these things. Um, and some of the things are automatic. Some of it requires paperwork, like even the $10,000 thing that seems simple, right? But there's an income cap, which means only those that make less than 125,000 or 250 married will get it. And only those with, um, loans that are held by the department of ed. So you still have to take some action. You have to let the department of ed know how much your income is. Well, during COVID, no one had to do that. Right. So they don't know. So there's going to be this application, um, out around the first part of October, that people can, we don't know what the application is going to say yet, but I imagine one of the first things is going to be what's your income. And they're looking at the 2020 and 2021 period. Um, And you're going to want to drop that basically uh, to be eligible for that. And it's 20,000 if someone has a Pell Grant. Um, And Pell Grants are something that's not understood a lot. People think, well, how is the 10,000 or 20,000 applied to my Pell Grant? Well, you don't repay a Pell Grant. It's a grant. It's just a way for the government to track its lower income folks. And so that's why if someone had gotten a Pell Grant, that usually meant that their family was a lower income, they qualified for that grant, and now they'll get a $20,000 instead. Um, But there's things you have to do. You have to file the application. If you had paid during COVID, you can file something to to ask for a refund, even if you'd refinance your loans. And here's one of the lesser known things. If you'd refinanced your loan during COVID, that's payment by a third party. That is something that you can get a refund for up to the 10 or possibly 20,000 if you ask for it in a certain way. 
So some things are automatic and some things you have to take a few steps to get. Oh, wow. So if you're sitting there with your multi six figure loans and you're just, you feel defeated because all of this stuff is just more confusing than ever. Let's talk about some resources for people. Obviously, the the if you the biggest resource is go hire an attorney who specializes in student loans, <laughs> because that you know that just that just makes sense. If you're sitting on six figures, multiple, even not not it doesn't even have to be six figures. Because I know people who've been you know had five figure loans and it's taken years and years and years to pay them off. So um, seeing an attorney, but let's talk about some of the things that you have available, because I know you have a wonderful, first of all, you've taught many CLEs on this and you have a wonderful YouTube channel. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, So we have a YouTube channel that I call the student loan sidebar. And we created that um, because videos seem to be where people want to get a lot of information. They can do it in between appointments and such. Um, The name originated from a publication that we do, a column in our local bankruptcy um, cram down newsletter. And so for that, we provided in writing the different things that they should be aware of for their clients or for their own loans each quarter. And that's available on our homepage of our website, which is kristiarkovich.com. And so you can go to the cram down sidebar and read what you like or the videos. uh, If you just Google Arkovich Law, YouTube, it comes right up. And so we try to do videos that are somewhere between two and 10 minutes that talk about whatever recent announcement, um, how someone can qualify, when their loans are eligible, and if there's anything they need to do. And the reason why I do that is because if you see that something's passed or about to pass, sometimes the title of the article might be more clickbait than anything. And Mm -hmm. I remember getting into an argument with one woman who was a nurse, and she was absolutely convinced that this public service waiver thing was going to get rid of her loans entirely. Um, But uh, there were some reasons why she was partially eligible and not completely. And she didn't know that, you know, from the article, the newscaster had just covered just the generic kind of top line and didn't get into the specifics. And so with the YouTube channel, we try to get into those specifics just a little bit more, but they're still easy to understand. Um, and, uh, And so that's free information that folks can go on and see. Um, we also give seminars for the Florida bar and some other things, some podcasts and such about different topics, um, that might include the joint spousal consolidation act. That's going to be our next video. Um, the house has passed it. The Senate has passed it. President Biden is expected to sign it probably within the next two weeks and is to allow those who went to school and later got married, those folks consolidated their loans. And the problem with that is that they can't unconsolidate. And they, they consolidate it into an older loan type. And what happens is, is they're trapped in that program. It's kind of a one way in, no way out kind of situation. And so they're not eligible for any of this new stuff. Um, and so this fix is basically to unwind that. And that's been a beef of ours for a number of years. Um, and we've obtained a similar result in bankruptcy through an adversary proceeding. But now people can get it much much uh, cheaper and much faster um, with this law change that we expect. So we'll do a video on that. Um, our videos usually come out a few days after the announcement or maybe a day or two, just so we have enough time to digest it. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Think about, well, I'm sure it's, I'm sure there are people who are going to go now, go there now and just binge. We'll, we'll include the link in the show notes. If people can do that, this may be what, 
if you're in Florida and you're getting through the hurricane and you're hunkering down, maybe you'll be binging on Christmas. Right, maybe binging videos. <laughs> and, um, and then we have a lot of folks who um, they're okay with the videos, but they want to know exactly what, you know, what to do with their loans. And it's a time versus money thing. You know, if, if, um, if our consultation fee isn't that much for the amount of money they owe, they might want to have us do a one-on-one -on -one consultation just to see, you know, if we can, what they need to do and, and mm -hmm. what we can do for them. And so for that, we waive our fee if, um, if they hire us. And then number two, sometimes we can tell them what they need to do in that half hour, hour, and then they can do it themselves. Most, many of our clients are attorneys and they're able to do that. And then three, if we just spend five minutes and we find that they're doing everything that they can do, then we don't end up charging them. So that's what we call as our consultation guarantee. We do charge for every consultation. We used to do them for free. We stopped that a number of years ago. We really can't afford to do that. Um, but I think it's a valuable you know, piece of information. It's not much money. And unfortunately, the amount of these loans, it's often the price of a house. You know, They're dealing with a large student yeah. loan. And um, these fixes are going to go away. You know, that, um, that deadline I mentioned of October 31, December 31, once those deadlines pass, it's going to go to the old way, the old system, because the reason these fixes are in place is because the current administration has used um, this HEROES Act to basically say there's a public emergency and we can do this. And, and that might raise a question with some of our attorneys is that what is legal? You know, how much of this is legal that they're doing? Well, right. you know, it's questionable because now we have President Biden saying that there's no pandemic. The pandemic is over. Well, is the state of emergency still here then to effectuate some of these changes? So wow. I'd encourage people to get in there and get these changes done, get the forgiveness, because it's impossible to unwind that. But there's a very strong possibility of some of these things going away earlier than anticipated if the support is not behind them. And then you'll have two classes of folks. You'll have folks that have already gotten the relief, the forgiveness. You'll have other ones that are pending that may or may not get it because there's years of litigation over whether or not it was legal for the administration to do this you know, via executive order versus an act of Congress. So, you know, that's a, a whole nother topic. <laughs> right. So this is really one of those situations where if this has been in the back of your mind, now it's time to bring it to the forefront and make an appointment with an attorney um, who handles student loans to really see what your options are. And, and for me, I mean, I, you, you always hear me advising my clients, don't, don't DIY. Through the years, I have, I have hired so many lawyers who specialize in different areas of practice. Yes, I could go figure things out. Yes, I could research. But when time is of the essence, you really want to make sure. And in something as complicated as this, I do think you, it is really would behoove people to go talk to somebody that this is what they do all day, every day, because they're going to know a lot of these nuances and a lot of these things. Just Christy has just dropped an absolute wealth of information here. And it's, it, you might have to listen to this two or three times to really understand the full impact of all of it. So um, I do think that's important. Let me ask you this. Do you... Is a student loan, since you're dealing with federal loans and things like that, is this something where you can help people in other states or is this, uh, are you limited to Florida? For states, for private loans, we limit ourselves to Florida unless we have co-counsel that works with us, um, which we do in those private discharge cases. For federal loans, we can do things nationwide generally. And so one of our more successful programs is that disability program, where if someone can't work full time doing what they used to do, 
we have an occupational medicine um, specialist that works with us and we typically can get discharges. So that would be nationwide there. Um, uh, so a little bit of both basically. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I've, I've really, I've known one person I went to law school with who had a, who actually had, she had a very serious disability that did not allow her to practice law shortly after she graduated. And it took her years to get that um, resolved, but fortunately she was able to. And I have a, another friend that I graduated from law school with who, by the time she was done, she owed about $350,000 and she started a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. She says, I start a nonprofit. If I work a certain amount in this nonprofit, then I'm eligible for, I guess, that public service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 10 um, years. So if you have 10 years of working for a qualified nonprofit, then you would be forgiven of the remaining balance. And that was also tax free. Yeah. So there are th those, and that is a very creative solution that a lot of people probably wouldn't think about. And right. so I think that's where there's also a benefit to talking with an attorney who kind of specializes in this area, because there are there is a lot of creative solutions to get. And I think you have to be, you have to pull out all of the, um, all the stops in trying to be creative and figure these things out. Because I think that this, I think this system was built deliberately to be kind of a quagmire um, because the banks and lenders, they're making the money. They're making a lot of money on this because even because so many people are attempting to pay and they're paying years and years of interest, even ones who eventually may have something in forbearance or default on it or whatever. Well, one of our primary arguments for discharging private loans is actually kind of like that. It's a predatory type of situation where in 2005 and six, the bankruptcy code was amended to basically give protection to private loans similar to federal student loans. And so there's a lot of private lenders out there that sent out marketing material and said, you know, do this, do that, you know, buy a car, do whatever it is you do with your money. Um, we have this for you. And they wanted to basically have their funds be counted as a student loan. And they were really nothing more than a consumer loan. They had a high rate of interest. They had a co-borrower. Um, but since they were considered a student loan, they were non-dischargeable. And in fact, that's where some of the recent case law has come out to say that it's not dischargeable. I mean, not that, sorry, not non-dischargeable. It's too many negatives, right. but. <laughs> um, <laughs> that it could be uh, dischargeable. Yeah. yeah, it could be dischargeable. And, and so there's a lot of, you know, help in that area. Um, so, uh, but the transparency of the system is horrible. Um, I've done multiple areas of law throughout my 30 year practice. And I have to say that student loans is the most confusing out there. Um, right now there's contradictory information out there because we have the old programs, then we have the new fixes that are temporary, you know, usually lasting within a few months or a, few, or a year here, then it's going to go back to the old program. So we have folks who believe that they shouldn't consolidate now because none of their earlier payments will count. Well, under these fixes, there's a one-time waiver where it will count, but the old information is still out there and it will be accurate again come next year. And so wow, that's confusing wow. to folks because and you cannot count on your servicer to give you the accurate information. Really also, should. I think one of the things that's really complicated this process a lot, uh, we saw this in the, uh, I represented lenders in foreclosure in the, or in around the recession. So 2007, eight, all those years there. Um, and so much of the complexity of that you see in here is passing it, is those loans getting sold. So your servicer changes over time too. And as things change, that also can have an impact on what you're seeing and understanding and believing 
all of that as well, because you may not be getting accurate information. If something has been sold several times, a lot can happen right. um, in the process of something being sold and how things are categorized or whatever. So it's really important to, uh, you know, dig deep and understand it and get help doing that. Um, you, also what, have a bit of a, you also have a bit of a deer in the headlights. You know, I once wanted to change my billing program, uh, but you know, all the different options out there, there were advantages and disadvantages. And so I just didn't make a decision. I, I had too much information. And so that's yeah. out there too, where it's just too much information. Folks will look at it. They don't have time. They don't want to get back to it. And then they don't make a decision, which is a decision in and of itself to remain exactly the same. So yeah. I and I cannot, I, and I think that's a wonderful point. I cannot stress enough how this decision, if your goal is to be wealthy, and live a rich life. This decision, you may think I can ignore this right now and just do whatever, and I'm just not going to deal with it. But one day something is going to happen that's going to force you to have to deal with it. And it's probably not going to be pretty. So now if, the, if this is something you've been hiding from and burying your head in the sand over, now is the time. And don't, um, don't try to do it yourself if it feels overwhelming. Go get somebody who who knows what they're talking about, who does this for a living, who is not overwhelmed by it because it's not their personal thing and ask them to help and pay them to help you. And um, and you'll wind up saving just thousands and thousands and thousands in the long run, most likely. So and I wanted to mention one other thing. Um, anyone who has not paid on a private loan. If you do a settlement on any remaining balance, um, first of all, there's a lot of things you should look at to see whether it's dischargeable. But once you're done with that, if you do settle it before the end of 2025, the result would be tax free. So if you get a settlement where you're paying 40 cents on the dollar or something like that, and 60% is being waived, you don't get a tax bill on the rest of that if you can get it done before uh, December 31 of 2025. So it's a few years down the road, but you know it's only around the corner basically with the settlement. Um, yeah. 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 So for the sure. reason the reason I reached out um, to offer this information on student loans is because um, minimizing those personal expenses is huge towards building your wealth, but minimizing firm expenses is important too. And so one of the things I've done with my office is we've gone remote. You know, since March of 2020, we went ahead and went remote and we decided we like it and, and so we're going to keep it up. We still have our office for when we need it. And so we're offering our office as workspaces for those attorneys who you're working at home too. Um, you're in Tampa, maybe. <laughs> and so, uh, but you only need an office on a sometimes basis. So we have it as uh, South Tampa workspaces. If anyone out there wants to reach out to us, um, I'd be, I'd love to have a chance to talk with them too. Wonderful. I think there are a lot of people out there who are looking for those kinds of solutions right now where they really don't need an office on a regular basis, but they like to have that place where they can meet clients if they need to do that. And Zoom doesn't work for them anymore or even just to get out of the house and go someplace and work. Cause I know a lot of people have little kids at home and even if they have a dedicated workspace, they may want that, that place they can do that. So wonderful, wonderful there resource there in South Tampa. Um, so uh, we need to end, but tell us how people can get in touch with you. You mentioned your YouTube channel, but tell us other ways they can get in touch with you if they want to. So our, our email is info at christyarkovich.com. And our phone number is 813-258-2808.
And then if you go on our website, there's, of course, the contact me forms. We have a blog also that I, I pretty regularly um, publish things that have come out. Um, and then the YouTube channel is uh, Arkovich Law. YouTube comes right up. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here, Christy. I think this has been hugely helpful and a lot of people hopefully will take this to heart and really take action on dealing with these student loans. I know the temptation for people is to just not think about it, but really, truly, if you want to build the kind of wealth that you say you want, then this is something that does have to be handled because this can take everything away, really. It can have that kind of impact on somebody's life. So as, as the case, when you mentioned your 70 year old client, I mean, you know, this is, this is no joke, these student loans. So, and we see that the government is going to be, you know, a limited resource in how they help us get out of this. So um, do reach out to a lawyer. If you're in Florida, reach out to Christy for sure. And thanks so much for being here, Christy. I so appreciate it. I've enjoyed our conversation. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. And your podcasts are wonderful, by the way. I've listened to a few others over the years and, and have really learned some things that have helped me in my practice. So, thank, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. If you have, we invite you to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. The more five-star reviews we have, the more women law firm owners will be able to positively impact. Your thoughts and opinions are so important to us. If you are a woman law firm owner who wants to scale your law firm to a million dollars or more in gross annual revenue and do it in a way that's sustainable and feels good to you, then we invite you to join us in the Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. The League is a community of highly intelligent, goal-oriented, and driven women law firm owners who are excited to support one another on their journeys to becoming wealthy women lawyers. We'll be sharing so much in the league in the coming year, including the exclusive million dollar law firm framework that until now, I've only shared with my private one-to-one -one clients. For more information and to join us, go now to www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash lead. That's www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash lead. Lead is spelled L-E-A-G-U-E. We look forward to seeing you soon in the league.